Hello, everyone. Welcome back. So, KC, yesterday we had an incredible conversation, and I'm so glad you're back here with us. Jamil, I so I wasn't at this recording that you're about to listen to in this episode, um, and I really missed being there. But I have to say, I just listened to the recording, and I loved being a listener. I loved being a listener. It was such a brilliant conversation that you had. Um, and can I brag on you for just a second? Oh, that's so sweet. Sure. I always take compliments. All right. So you are here with three esteemed guests from the university. You're, you're hosting this conversation about immigration, about undocumented students, about U.S. foreign policy. And you're with uh, Dr. Carmen Khoury, a historian, a professor of history at, at Southern. Which is absolutely um, amazing. She's so amazing. Amazing. Um, you have Dr. Loida Reyes, who is a social work professor at Southern um, and worked for many years for the state. Um, and then you have Esteban Garcia, who's the assistant, associate bursar and also does so much great activism work around undocumented students, not just on campus, but, you know, state advocacy level. So you really hang in there. I mean, you've facilitated a beautiful conversation. Um, and I'm sure that listeners will actually forget that the you are a student. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah, this was a really good conversation for me. I'm extremely passionate about supporting that community in any way in which I can. I think it's important for not only myself, but for students to listen and to find ways in which they hold privilege. And for me, my citizenship is one of the largest ways in which I hold privilege. So when I can engage in dialogue and learn more about the undocumented community in DACA uh, to see how I can do my part to contribute um, to that radical imagination like we talked about at the end, then I am so excited to always do so. And this episode really reminded me why I love working at a university. <clears throat> love it. Because what you all did was had such a nuanced conversation. <clears throat> like we're used to the, the media narratives, um, which are often simplistic, super problematic. Um, but you all complicated a lot of those narratives and gave us some deep historical uh, grounding. Uh, we talked about the impact on, on families of a lot of this demonizing um, uh, rhetoric around immigration. And I just realized, like, man, this is truly what I love about higher ed and about universities. You have such... Um, you have educated people. You have experts from these different areas. Um who are constantly, constantly working and engaged in so many things. So it's just a rich conversation. And I, I'm just so proud of you that you did a great job. And I'm sort of glad that I wasn't there, not because I didn't want to be there for the conversation, but because what I just heard and what you all are about to hear, I wouldn't change a thing. Well, and if I were there, it would be different. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it was a really fun conversation for me. It was really good. And also, I think when we talk about topics like immigration and politics, we always want to oversimplify things. We want to take these concepts and these issues and make them as simplistic as possible and turn them into short slogans that people can chant and yell and remember. But often we forget that these conversations and these topics are complex. All of these issues in our politics have historical context and political context that is happening around them. And so I think... Um, we were able to really accomplish that by showing how complicated this issue really is, how historic it is, and how it hinges on so many things. How so much have led up to a border crisis, a immigration crisis, and how we need to be thinking strategically from a university lens, but also from a civic lens of how to solve this issue. And, you know, the only other thing I would add to that is just that as a faculty member, I think that this podcast would be really useful in for a, a course, you know, bringing this podcast into your course, if you're teaching anything related to um, immigration, U.S. policy, borders, mm -hmm. political, um, science. So, uh, political science, in, in so many different areas. So this, um, this really is a rich conversation that I, you know, this is a good one to assign for your class and, and to host a discussion around. 
Yes, I hope so. I hope um, faculty are looking at our podcast and seeing how to ingrain that into their syllabi. So, yes, definitely. And I also think that for students listening, this is a great way of doing a class project or a group project. I would high key recommend trying a podcast of your own. Hmm. Yes. And this will, you know, we should we should, you know, let folks actually listen to the episode instead of just talking about it. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, um, this this will, I'm sure, be one of many, many podcast episodes to come around issues of immigration, citizenship, et cetera, because there there's really so much to say. Um, and this needs to be an ongoing conversation. So the first of many to come. Very much. All these episodes will entwine intersectionality, multiple identities, and talking about how they show up in spaces and why does that matter in higher education. But you are right. Let's get them to the episode. So I guess you hear from me again soon. Hello, welcome to Real Talk. Real Talk is about real conversations with real people regarding diversity in higher education. I am your co-host, Jamil Harp, a student activist. And I'm Casey Counselor, a professor in the Communication, Media, and Screen Studies Department at Southern Connecticut State University. All right, Jamil, let's go. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. So today we have a lovely conversation. And before we begin, I want to make my stance on the topic extremely clear. DACA and undocumented students belong here. They are home here and they're home at SESU. And so today we will be talking about immigration and DACA students and undocumented students and the realities of this complicated situation. And I found a quote that I think really encompasses our upcoming conversation. It is time to recognize that the American way of life, our cars and comforts, our shrimp and coffee, our ignorance about our government's actions and our regional backyard has created this immigration crisis. That is a quote from Rebecca Gordon, a journalist. And so to start our conversation off, I would like to ask our experts here today a simple, uh, simple question. Often when we have these topics, um, people may not know what DACA is or immigration status is. So can someone um, explain what DACA is? Sure, I can take that on, Jamil. Um, first of all, thank you so much for hosting this conversation. It's a very important topic, and I echo your sentiments that uh, DACA and undocumented students and their families belong here at SESU, and, and, and they're part of our family and our community. So uh, to address your question about what is DACA, um, I guess we have to step back a little bit more and uh, think of you know, ways of like how, you know, how people from other countries that were born in other countries come to America. Uh, there is a process, you know, that where you can come here, quote unquote, legally uh, is a very antiquated process is very expensive and there's very limited avenues for where you how you can come out, come into the United States and it's lengthy too so a lot of people uh, because of uh, situations in their country their home countries they end up uh, coming to the United States either crossing the border uh, illegally or you know coming on a, on a visa and staying um, you know past their uh, approved time uh, so the uh, DACA specifically applies to uh, younger uh, people that were brought here, usually by their parents, you know, when they were younger, uh, as early as a few months old or, you know, when they were teenagers. Uh, back in, I believe, 2012, President Obama uh, issued, uh, with, you know, after receiving pressure from a lot of immigrant rights groups, uh, issued an executive order. Uh, preventing these uh, young people to be deported uh, back to their countries. And he gave them temporary uh, permission to stay here and to legally work and do a lot of things that their documented peers can work. This was an executive action because Congress did not um, act on uh, providing a permanent solution. So that was eight, nine years ago. There was some, and we're still here. There's people are in limbo. 
most of them grew up here and they don't know any other country. Um, you know, they don't even speak their home language, whether it's Spanish or Tagalog or, or whatnot. So that's, that's where we are at this point. Thank you. Yeah, I think it was really important to define what DACA is as we navigate through this conversation, because I'm assuming we're going to be using this term a lot. And I think to start off, too, it's important to talk about what is happening here now, the realities of DACA and undocumented students, the realities of families, um, to humanize this experience. A lot of times people only interactions with this topic is on the nightly news. And I know we have a social worker on, so somewhat a social work background. So maybe we could talk more about what is happening on the streets, on our campus, and just in general, so we can have an idea of what families and students are facing. So uh, my name is Loida uh, Reyes. And from a social work perspective, um, DACA uh, families and children are being pushed to the background, right? They're, they're scared to request services that they need. Um, and um, they're not trusting any agencies, um, even though the role um, uh, from my uh, practice perspective in child welfare um, was never to uh, call ISIS on them or report them in any way, but um, they see authority as being authority and they don't distinguish that. Um, and uh, the repercussions for someone um, telling on them uh, can be major. And so they're, they're hiding right now and, and living in fear. Um, the child welfare system has been um, plagued with many families coming to their attention because they're not getting the services that they should have gotten. And they would have had they trusted um, some of the agencies that all of us that don't live under the status um, easily trust and, and, and go to in times of needs. So I think it, you know, they, they're living in a very precocious situation and they're, and they're unique in that experience. Um, and so, you know, it, social work plays a, a big role in trying to support them in, in ways that other professions may not be able to. I'm glad you touched on the anxieties. I can only imagine the anxieties, especially with families that have mixed immigration statuses, right? You have a student who may be living on campus who may have status, right? May have citizenship or something of the sorts, but family does not. And that anxiety of, you know, I'm in my dorm room and not knowing what my family um, is going through at home or being there to support them through this and having to deal with that anxiety on top of financial aid stress and the stress of just being an ordinary college student. And I think for a lot of people, this can be a compounding amount of anxiety. But I think we can touch upon, you know, that reality for families and for students. But also, I know this is a common question amongst regular people, like everyday people that are talking about these things is why are people coming here? Why is there an immigration practice, um, immigration crisis? And a lot of that is America's fault, right? Of why people are coming here from Latin America. And so I want to get into next, you know, anybody can jump in talking about what happened historically to bring us here. So I'm, I'm going to jump in. I'm Carmen Khoury, and I'm a historian of modern Latin America. Um, my area of specialization is Central America, and I study immigration from Central America, which I think is really timely in terms of why is it that people are coming here. And in truth, uh, Central American immigration to the United States in any large scale really begins in the 1970s. Uh, during the Cold War, when the United States backed um, military dictatorships in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, uh, as well as in Nicaragua. And in all of these cases, uh, we see essentially people fleeing from state violence. Um, and our very first uh, undocumented uh, children to arrive in the United States so uh, Central American children that arrived 
Uh, they were fleeing that violence, and many of them made their way to Los Angeles. Uh, and so that's important because what's happened in recent uh, decades is that we see with these wars ending, we saw some pretty uh, political um, chaos, in essence, um, as these countries attempted to reestablish order. Um, meanwhile, those kids in L.A., a lot of them joined gangs uh, based in L.A., including the 18th Street Gang. And yes, it is called 18th Street, not Calle 18, uh, and the MS-13. And then under the Clinton administration, many of these same young people were deported, quote unquote, back to uh, Central America. And the reason I put, quote unquote, back is because many of them sort of like these DACA kids, really knew the U.S. way more than they knew their home countries. And that now has led to some other stuff, which is essentially these gangs have taken over um, many of these countries and are more powerful than the government and military in some cases. And so now we see families essentially fleeing gang violence and cartel violence. And of course, we can tie all of that back also to the U.S. in the sense that we have a serious cocaine habit in this country, which fuels these cartels. And these cartels then in turn uh, fuel also these gangs with the sale of drugs. So, I think that was a perfect um, representation of how America plays a hand and the human race crises happening in Latin America. And not only in terms of the creation of gang violence and cartels, but also in terms of climate change. We know that we are one of the biggest contributors to climate change, and that deeply impacts Latin America. And, you know, we in some areas like Guatemala, we have droughts happening, and Honduras, we're having floods. So some places are getting no water, some places are getting too much water, shorelines and sea lines are moving. I think often as Americans, many of us live in places where we're not seeing climate change. Many of us do, like California, but a lot of us don't see that happening at this scale and it's happening in Latin America. Farmers are losing farms due to climate change and it's already creating not one, a climate crisis, but also a economic crisis, which is just more reasons to um, want to leave your country. You know, if you are dying due to climate change and poverty and food, um, it creates this crisis that we directly have a hand in. And I, I think the other thing it's worth noting, I mean, we now have the Biden administration and they are seeking to change policies. Uh, but I'd like to just point out that under the Obama administration, the United States was sending considerable aid especially to the highlands in Guatemala and helping uh, Mayan communities to grow new varieties of corn and beans, squash, uh, because of this climate change. And actually, in all those communities where we sent people to help uh, reformulate how people were growing crops, we saw a sizable reduction in emigration out of those areas and towards the United States. And I think that points to, so I think the U.S. can have both a positive and a negative impact in ways um. that we can invest smartly, which will reduce, you know, the push factors. And frankly, nobody wants to leave their home country if they don't have to. And if I may add one more thing. So, um, so when we talk about about immigration and, and undocumented immigration, it, we tend to focus in, in Latin America just because the majority of uh, the immigrants, undocumented immigrants, are coming from Mexico and South America and, and whatnot. Uh, but in my outreach at SCSU, as my role of a Dreamers Action Alliance chair, I've met undocumented students from from uh, Africa, like many many countries in Africa, from Korea, from many Southeast Asian um, countries, from Canada as well. So, like they, so we tend, uh, you know, in the national conversation, we tend to focus in Latin America. And yes, that is a, a lot of where most uh, immigrants are coming from. But there's also, uh, and we tend to forget about, you know, especially uh, black immigrants, especially ones that come from Africa or, or from, uh, you know, from, you know, even from Latin America that are black, you know, there's a lot of intersectionality and the struggles that they face when they come here. And I was looking at some stats for specifically for Connecticut and about 26% of undocumented immigrants are from 
places other than Mexico or Latin America. So so that's a huge percentage that come from Eastern or even Western Europe or Asia or uh, or Africa. So that, that was interesting that we tend to forget in there, uh, especially in immigrant rights group uh, circles, they tend to be, those groups of people tend to be forgotten. So uh, anytime I have the opportunity to bring them up and like, you know, like they are also part of this conversation. We definitely don't want to uh, forget them. I'm actually really glad you brought that up as somebody who studies Central American immigration, because in about the last 10 years, we've seen a significant rise. And listen carefully to what I'm about to say. People arriving on ships uh, as cargo from Africa to Brazil and then walking all the way through Panama, including the Darien Gap, which is a place where we can't even build roads because it is so intense, the jungle, all the way up uh, to the Mexican and U.S. border. I think it's very safe to say that Central Americans have a hard time making that journey, but imagine if you were a Francophone African making that journey. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of these Africans are finding themselves on the border and facing the same issues that Central Americans are but in addition to that, we have this whole linguistic um, and frankly, racial issue as well. Thank you both for bringing that up. I often think about how our country historically um, welcomes some refugees in and not others. You know, I think about the 80s and how we didn't welcome um, El Salvadorans into our country, but we welcomed Cubans, right? completely different response. Um, so you want to talk more about how we welcome others and how we don't welcome some? And what does that mean for our values and morals as a society and as a country? I'd love to take that up, but I'd first like to make a distinction between immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers, because I think that's really important. So somebody who is an immigrant is generally somebody who is motivated by economic uh, reasons, uh, they want a better life, in essence, or maybe they want to be reunited with a family member. Uh, they generally seek legal uh, ways to come to the country, not always. Whereas somebody who is seeking asylum or refuge is someone who is fleeing some type of uh, difficulty in their home country, political perhaps, uh, maybe religious discrimination or racial or ethnic discrimination. Now, the difference between asylum seekers and refugees has everything to do with port of entry. So uh, when you come to the U.S.-Mexican border, or if you were to come to the U.S.-Canada border, which is a land border, you would be an asylum seeker. Whereas if you were to fly um, into, let's say, Miami airport, then you are a refugee. Generally, refugees come to the United States having been in a refugee camp, and so it's almost like they've already gone through a certain amount of process when they get to the United States. And so this is important, actually, to your whole question about Salvadorans and Cubans. So Cubans generally arrived as refugees, and Salvadorans generally arrived as asylum seekers. But of course, there's also the whole political issue, which is critical here. Uh, during the Cold War, the United States, of course, supported capitalism and Cuba was communist. So therefore, we were in opposition to the government and welcomed uh, refugees from there as a way of saying it's a failed system. Whereas we were bolstering the Salvadoran, uh, essentially military dictatorship. And so when these people were fleeing and were literally sending millions of dollars uh, to this country, then it's essentially saying, well, we're supporting a government that uh, creates human rights violations. So politically, we couldn't welcome Salvadorans. I often find that, especially bringing academics apart of this conversation, is so enlightening and helpful because these policies are complicated and complex. Um, and are rooted in so much underlying politics that we do not get into. Um, but I also want to talk about 
you know, the Trump administration and the rhetoric that has came out of that administration, you know, the demonization of immigrants, specifically Mexicans, right? Talking about how it's an invasion, how they're very bad people, how they're criminals and creating this false narrative that does not line up with any statistics we have about our immigration, but also is just inhumane and unproductive for the conversation and the implications that have had for many DACA and undocumented students um, that are here. So I, uh, that's a very good point, and thank you for bringing it up. And one thing that I would say about that, it actually, actually even though he had uh, you know, all this rhetoric about you know immigrants being criminals and, and all that, what it actually did, uh, it, if we can look at the positive, is it kind of like helped uh, people that were in the sidelines to become more proactive in supporting and advocating for uh, for this uh, population. Uh, I saw, you know, because if we look at you know previous administrations, like such, for example, uh, the Obama administration, uh, he used to be called the deporter in chief because he deported more. Uh, immigrants than you know previous uh, Republican administrations. So so there is um, you know immigration, especially uh, you know it becomes a political football in in a sense where they don't you know they just want to let it you know let it stay there um, you know and maybe Carmen can talk more about the history of what uh, you know politically the United States have done to. Uh, legalize people that were here, um, you know, undocumented regularly. There is a long history throughout the 20th century, most recently with Ronald Reagan uh, in the 80s doing a mass, so quote unquote, amnesty program for people that, you know, came here uh, illegally or overstayed their visa, they just never applied for citizenship. And after that, uh, after the, I think it was 1986, it really the rhetoric and the policies changed dramatically, um, you know, to become more restrictive from people to uh, be able to uh, legalize their status. I'm really glad that you described it as a political football because it absolutely is, and it's one really where Democrats and Republicans and both enjoy kicking it a little bit. And I think ultimately the reason why we never get real traction on this issue is because we're dealing with non-citizens. In other words, politicians are not going to be rewarded for doing something meaningful. But I do think that as demographics are shifting and Hispanics are increasing in population, it's going to become, the pressure is going to continue to build. I'm also hopeful. Um, we are at the beginning of a new administration, so I don't want to be doubtful. But there's one thing I want to say about what Jamil was saying in terms of Trump and his rhetoric, which was absolutely about dehumanizing Hispanics, describing them, defining them really as rapists, criminals, drug dealers, human traffickers, etc. And I think that this helped to justify, frankly, some of the worst human rights abuses in our country's recent history towards asylum seekers and immigrants. And I think just last week, I heard that um, they're now taking to court that doctor in Georgia who uh, essentially removed women's uteruses without their permission. That, that's pretty brutal, right? Um, we also, of course, had separation of families, uh, children. I think there are over 500 children to this day that our government cannot locate their parents. Uh, so these are really serious consequences that the rhetoric arguably helps to justify. And I think that that's an important point to keep in mind. These aren't just words. These were words and actions. Yes, words and actions. I love how you put that because when you, some of these things cannot be accidental, right? When you say these words and then you do actions that reinforce the words that you said, meaning you meant them, right? Separating children from families, right? Then not knowing who the parents are for these children and then offering DNA tests at the cost of the parents to try to reunite them, I was hearing, right? Removing organs out of people. That is deeply intentional, deeply racist. Like what are the intentions behind such action and even the implications for such a law like the family separation policy? Um, 
that sounds like it's something larger than a political and immigration issue. It sounds like we're having a deeply racial issue. And I think that's actually a very interesting point here, because I think that Hispanics are often racialized in our society. And I think it's worth saying that the word Hispanic means Spanish speaker. And this Mm -hmm. is to say that there are many Hispanics who look, quote unquote, Asian. There are many Hispanics who are Afro-Latino. There is no single uh, visual for what a Hispanic is. Um, Obviously, there are stereotypes about what is or isn't Hispanic. Uh, But absolutely, I think this is an issue of ethnic, if not racial, violence that we're seeing or that we saw in the last administration. And while we're talking about rhetoric, why do you think that we continue to have the stereotype of you know, undocumented people are stealing our jobs. That same talking point over and over that they're taking the jobs, they're going to take over the economy, those kind of talking points. I think it's fueled by our media, um, by leadership, right? If, if that's the only time people experience people that are different from them. Um, we were talking earlier about how still in Connecticut, you can be very segregated, and the only opportunity that you have to see people that are different from you are when you get to college or when you enter the workforce. And so the media plays a huge role in building or reinforcing those stereotypes. Um, and in the last uh, presidency, we saw where leadership was used in a way where it, it promoted hate of these stereotypes to be um, stated as if they were truths. And so if you don't have any other way to have contact with people of Hispanic descent, then you believe it. How far often we are fearful of what we don't know. You know, we're fearful of the unknown, those we haven't met, those we haven't talked to. And then when you create a narrative in media and really any platform, um, it can reinforce and you can grow very strong beliefs and opinions on people you have never met, don't know, um, don't pose a risk to you, but you have this perceived idea of a threat. And often you're right, it's not until we enter spaces of mixed company where we have these interactions and go, wait a minute, this is not what I thought it was going to be like. This is not the fears in which I had in my mind are not coming to fruition in which they told me they were. Um, So I'm glad you brought that up. I think, though, too, another important part to this is that white male privilege is seemingly under threat. And what I mean by that is that in my father's generation, if you were white and male and had a high school degree, chances are you could get a decent paying job in a factory or doing different type of work. At any rate, there were more opportunities And now those opportunities are being reduced or pay is being reduced, um, essentially as unions have become weaker. We've seen, you know, decreasing pay. We've also seen many factories going overseas and women have increased their education level. Minorities have increased their education levels and suddenly white men are finding themselves having less and less opportunities. And I think that creates a lot of insecurity. And I think it's really easy to say, this group is taking away my job versus I didn't get these skills in order to have these opportunities. I'm glad you bring that up, that kind of division between communities, right? Like, how does white supremacy play into our immigration policy? Not just white supremacy, but also other groups as well play into this concept of this entitlement of this belongs to me and no one else is entitled to come after it. Like, I'm, I'm supposed to have this. I'm supposed to have that kind of mentality. And I'm glad you bring up... Um, race because, quite frankly, these immigration policies, a lot of times it deals with race. Um, And we see that in which how we deal with immigrants and which countries and who gets in and who does not. Right. I mean, as something that Esteban was saying, it's not just people from Latin America, but think about under the Trump administration, the ban on Muslim countries. Very much. 
very much. Now, taking the conversation kind of back into higher education and more Southern Pacific, um, what are the resources that we are currently offering? Like what groups are really active on this issue? Like what's what's the hot topics happening currently? Um, so back uh, specifically for Southern, back in 2016, uh, a group of, um, you know, faculty, staff members uh, uh, partnered up with an organization called Connecticut Students for a Dream, uh, which is an undocumented youth-led organization that fights for advocate for, for students' rights. Uh, and uh, that was probably like a few weeks before the uh, Trump election. And after that, the election, we came together as a group. Uh, and, uh, you know, Carmen and Lloyd, I can attest to like, you know, how like sometimes when faculty and staff get together to do something, it's very bureaucratic, very slow. And I can't tell you how quick and good this process moved along and created a support team to uh, advocate for our students to create policy to review all of our policies to make sure that they were undocu friendly and to make sure that we are a welcoming uh, environment for the uh, for these students and their families so we created a website uh, was the first step um, and then from that we review what policies and what do we do if for example uh, one of our students is at risk of being deported or their family member because that's something real that happened and and we didn't know what to do. Like, you know, we had a student that their parent was being deported and we just didn't know what to do. So at that point we started creating a protocol for addressing situations like that. And then going beyond just the campus, we started advocating for policies at the uh, state and national level. So we partnered with immigrants, right organizations to advocate for access to institutional aid grants for undocumented students because they were paying into a fund to give out scholarships that they couldn't access those funds. So we, uh, there was a state law that passed in 2018 allowing students to apply for institutional aid. They're still locked out of many financial aid opportunities, but at least it's a good beginning. Uh, and then we're also, you know, advocating at the uh, national level with our uh, Congress people to make sure that they continue to uh, push for a permanent immigration solution for for these students and frankly their families too because uh, we know you know we just focus on our students but we know that their families and the anxiety of not you know having their parents or their relatives uh, you know have a permanent solution is also uh, you know critical for us. Um, often I love to circle back to the topic that we have talked about all through the podcast is student activism. How can students, particularly students that are not undocumented, right, that are not DACA students, but want to be allies to the community, how can they join forces and support and protect this cause? Like what are some ideas and some causes they can get behind on campus and also in their community to really engage with this issue? So the Dreamers Action Alliance, we are part of our mission is to make sure that students are part of our leadership group because we know, especially undocumented students, because they know we they know they know better than us, me as a you know as a citizen staff member or as a faculty member to that what obstacles are real for them. So we definitely include students in our group in our leader being leaders of the team. Uh, and then also we welcome advocates, allies, uh, whether they are, you know, have experience with immigration themselves in their family, or frankly, you know, they're just interested in helping their peers. So we have that group that is open to all, you know, all members of the campus community to, um, to be part of that. And we put on events at least once or twice a semester as far as, you know, engaging the campus community in conversations about immigration, doing either a panel discussion or book reading, uh, things of the sort. Uh, so definitely, it, you know, that's something that we do. And also advocate, you know, encourage our uh, student organizations, especially the multicultural organizations to, uh, to talk about these issues and to, uh, you know, to support their 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 peers uh, in that. And uh, most recently, right now, we're working with the Student Government Association to create a uh, training for all student leaders uh, in the mm. SGA and also for uh, for student organizations. So we're going to be having a 
a seminar of sort uh, for them uh, to make sure that they, you know, they are aware of that. And test training that we've done in the past, uh, but with COVID, you know, we're started to do it again. Uh, so that make sure that we continue to have those conversations as much as we can. Yeah, I think um, often we wait to get active, right? We go, I don't know enough about the cause to do something yet. I think it doesn't take too much to get involved. You can turn on the TV, you can see the images coming from the border crisis. We see the images every single day. You know, we have members of our community, which this is a real life issue for them. And I would urge students, you know, I think it's great. Um, and we're going to have some recommendations towards the end about an upcoming program that you can attend. But I think it's great, you know, learning and reading and diving deeper into the issue. But quite frankly, action, right? Talking to your lawmakers. We as college students, we vote. Okay, and our vote matters. So vote with intentions. When you are picking a candidate to vote for, make sure what is their immigration policy? How strong is it? Where do they stand on it? Do they stand anywhere? Do they have a plan? Look for politicians with a plan. You can call your representative, right? If you know someone that has uh, that's undocumented or DACA, support them. Support your friends emotionally is something you can do. Right. Ask them what they need, how you could be assistance. Sometimes all it takes is a conversation or maybe it's something else. Right. We have, I'm assuming, numerous organizations in New Haven, but definitely throughout Connecticut that deal with this issue. Volunteer your time. Right. We are college students that are now becoming experts in our fields. We are getting our bachelor's. Some of us are getting graduate degrees. See how you can lend your expertise to the issue. Right. If you are a graphic designer, can you make flyers? If you're in finance and business, can you fundraise and do grant writing for organizations that are working on this issue? Right. If you're a communication major, can you do public speaking on behalf of some of these issues? How can you get involved? Use your major, use your platform and use your networks to try to leverage your resources on this topic. We do not have to wait for a call of action. We can feel it. We can see it and act. Um, the, this being inactive is almost like saying that's okay. By us doing nothing is by us condoning it. And so in, in order while we learn about these topics and we, you know, get more aware of social justice, we get more aware, we get deeper and we learn all these different things. It's important to think about how am I contributing to the community around me and making this space not just better for myself, but for those around me, especially where I hold privilege. I want to say thank you. Thank you so much for speaking about the need to be active and the many ways that students can make a real difference. But I want to encourage students, too, to realize it's not just speaking out about immigration. They also need to speak out about U.S. foreign policy because U.S. Mm. foreign policy plays a critical role in push factors and pull factors that are driving immigration. And I think that we need to be conscious of what it means when the United States decides to not support food aid or other type of aid in Latin America and what that might mean. I also think that as educators, we have to be mindful about providing opportunities in our courses to allow students to um, do this advocacy work. Um, because some of them just don't know how to do it. Some of them no, don't know that little things that they do can make a big impact. And so, um, you know, uh, there are other committees on campus that offer these opportunities in a way that um, instructors can take that on um, and easily integrate it into their course. To even extend on that, do you have any recommendations for how faculty can create that sense of belonging among students, especially students that hold these identities in the classroom? I think it's important, again, to my point, my previous point, is that you really have to expose them. Um, you know, in many of mm. my classes, I, I, I put a lot of effort in bringing in books, bringing in literature, um, bringing in presenters of different of different uh, racial background from different groups 
from different culture um, to really um, open their eyes and make them aware <laughs> that, you know, our world is diverse, um, but also um, engage them in those discussions on a regular basis. I think that integration of social justice, um, oppression, anti-oppression in our coursework is so critical for them to really start to look at this and think about it and process this. Um, and challenge their own biases and beliefs. I think too, trying to get students out in the community through classwork mm -hmm. uh, can be really meaningful. As a historian, uh, I have my students do oral histories. So I teach a course where I have students do oral histories of the Caribbean community in New Haven. And it's always surprising to me how much the students enjoy it. I make them speak with somebody who's older and they're like, you know, I've never sat down and spoken with somebody in their 70s. And it was amazing. And I realized that this person was born in such a different place than me, but we had so much in common. And I think that that's an important recognition, which is to say, just because we look different, maybe they have an accent I don't, doesn't mean we're not all people and we don't all have shared experiences. And I think that can be really helpful as well especially because in the news we're given these images of immigrants that honestly dehumanize. That was beautifully said. Now, this is something we do for all our guests and you all are no different. So in your most radical imagination, when you're reimagining what SESU can look like, higher education can look like in terms of how we deal with immigration, what would it look like for you? I think that ideally mm. citizenship wouldn't matter in terms of opportunities for students. I think that would make a, a radical difference. I think having a nation that truly welcomes people and uh, give them opportunity regardless of their citizenship. Um, one of the troubling things about immigration is that we choose to welcome some while we make it very painful for others. And so my mm. wish is uh, to make um, that Statue of Liberty, you know, light that light again and to say all are welcome and everyone can benefit from um, the, uh, the blessings that we have here in America that most people, you know, I think we take for granted sometimes and most people don't have. Yeah, and I would echo what Carmen and Lloyd have said, just making sure that, you know, citizenship is not a barrier for uh, for access, for opportunities. And, and we see that, you know, in real life right now with uh, a lot of undocumented and DACA students not being able to pursue certain career paths because they don't have a permanent uh you know, status, for example, uh, you know, nursing for certain nursing, you have to pass a background check to do placements and whatnot. And because of their status, they're not able to do that. So they can't pursue though, that those avenues. So definitely uh, being mindful of that. And especially, you know, for the younger people, because this is their country. They, they live here most of their life. They might not even speak another language other than English. Um, you know, they are part of our community and they want to be part. So we want to harness that, that, that great, uh, you know, energy that they have in making part of our, of, you know, a full part of our society. I think for myself, um, my answers to these questions, you know, change every episode. And I think it's so amazing how they just transform. But I echo all your sentiments, but definitely I would add that we celebrate our differences instead of demonize them. You know, we welcome our differences, we celebrate them, we celebrate our cultures, and we are able to embrace our cultures in public spaces here at SESU and across our nation, that we are able to show up and be our authentic selves, be accepted and loved and valued for being that is how I would reimagine this. And I love what you said, Carmen, about um, citizenship not mattering in terms of access mm -hmm. to opportunities in higher education. That would be a radical day. But yes, um, I'd like to thank you all for coming. It has been such a pleasure 
But before we go, I know Carmen and Luna have a program to announce. So I'll just begin and I'll let Loida take over and say that Loida and I are co-chairs along with Bill Faraklis, uh, and we are organizing a major event next week around a book called Dreaming America, Voices of Undocumented Youth in Maximum Security Detention, which is a collection of poems written by children between the ages of 13 and 17 who were in maximum security prison for the crime, frankly, of trying to seek asylum in our country. Um, it's a really powerful collection. Uh, Seth Mickelson, who helped these uh, children to write these poems, is coming to our campus, and he'll be giving two talks, and I'll let Lloyda take over. The conversation with Seth will occur on April 7th, um, between 12 and 2 o'clock, and it's a free event for everyone. That evening from 5.30 to 7.30, there will be an event on learning how or how to do meaningful advocacy, which was part of what we talked about today. Um, I think that this is a, an example of um, ways that the SCSU community can come together on one issue and provide opportunities for students to become involved, um, regardless of who they are, whether they're a part of DACA or not. Um, and so... Um, another part of the event is we're inviting community uh, organizations um, on campus, this time, unfortunately, virtually, um, but they're going to come in to talk about their work with immigrant families um, and uh, think creatively of how to help um, in different ways, learning from each other. So it should be a great event, um, and it's um, put together by the Latin American Caribbean Studies Committee, as Carmen stated, um, we also have a minor um, and uh, the students are, are encouraged to um, seek more information about um, because again, it offers them opportunities to learn about a, um, a community that is uh, growing in our population. Well, everyone, make sure you please go and register for that event and attend. I will definitely be there. And I'd once again like to thank you all for taking the time and being here with us. Um, I truly appreciate it. So, Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you all.